Money FM 89.3, the best of Saturday mornings. How to clean up and recover from Hurricane Ian, now a post-tropical storm Ian, all across the southeastern part of the U.S. from Florida all the way up through Georgia and now the Carolinas. Um, this storm, it was a Category 4 hurricane that absolutely knocked the uh, the wind out of uh, southwestern Florida uh, and causing hundred over $100 billion in damage to – at this moment, they're saying about 21 people perished, although they expect that number to go up as they are cleaning up. Uh, this uh, – the severity, the strength of this storm is uh, leading a climate a climatologists to once again say, hey, look – you know, climate change is here. It's real. It doesn't mean that the, anything, you know, it means that some of our storms are going to be stronger and more frequent, et cetera, hitting in different places. Uh, to get some perspective on this particular storm and also where we are broadly in the climate discussion, uh, let's bring on our, our old friend, Professor Ben Horton, who is the director of the Earth Observatory of Singapore at Nanyang Technological University. Ben, great to have you with us. I wish we didn't have to talk to you about this particular incident that's been happening this week. But here it is. And uh, tell us about the the outsized strength of what was Hurricane Ian now, a, a, a tropical storm. Well, Hurricane Ian, well, if we think about the 2022 tropical cyclone um, season, there haven't really been an a, a anomaly in the number of tropical cyclones. But when they have occurred, they've occurred at a huge strength. So Tropical Ian is an example of that. It made landfall as a Category 4 hurricane. And in U.S. history, it's anticipated when the records are compiled that it will be the fifth strongest hurricane that has ever made landfall in the United States. This hurricane caused colossal damage because it has all the attributes of a hurricane whose intensity is enhanced by climate change, whose size is enhanced by climate change. It was a colossal hmm. size of a hurricane. Hmm. And also whose speed was enhanced by climate change. It was a slow-moving hurricane. That's one of the things that we've seen a lot more recently. And when it's a slow-moving hurricane, it means it sits alongside the coast. It means it deposits huge amounts of rainfall. Florida had rainfall in 12 hours that was equivalent to six months of rainfall over wow. the summer season wow. in Florida. Mm. Also, when it's a slow-moving hurricane, the storm surge can combine with a high tide to cause these storm flood tides to be of a height of up to six metres, 18 feet. Wow. Which if you just think about being along a coastline and seeing a wall of water that's six metres high, you can see why Fort Myers or Naples on the Panhandle had such a big amount of destruction. Now, one thing that isn't related to climate change, but one of the things that is a significantly worried scientists is if the track of the hurricane doesn't make landfall on the Gulf Coast, doesn't make landfall on the Atlantic Coast, but makes landfall on the panhandle of Florida. Because hurricanes in the northern... And, and, and that's that southwest kind of corner quadrant of the state for those who aren't familiar with Florida. Yeah, yeah. so if you just look, take a map of Florida, you're looking at the western side of the of the Florida Peninsula. Mm -hmm. And hurricanes 
have a counterclockwise direction in the Northern Hemisphere. So it just funnels all the water. There were a variety of academic papers that were written by people um, who I work with um, that really picked this as one of the big major disasters for the US. So when we saw the track, we were exceedingly worried. And unfortunately, our worries were a reality. Yeah, Ben, just to come back on that point, for the benefit of some of our listeners, maybe there's one or two sceptics still out there. Storms have been happening every year. Just explain again why climate change is increasing the intensity and ferocity of these hurricanes. Well, hurricanes need three conditions to form. Okay, so first of all, they need a pre-existing weather disturbance. So usually it's warm air moving over a cold water body and therefore it migrates upwards, is replaced by cold air and you start to get the circulation that, for example, forms thunderstorms that you see here in Singapore. The second condition you need is light winds, because if there are strong winds, when you get that disturbance, the disturbance is blown out and you don't get the formation of a tropical depression, which then forms a tropical storm, which then forms a tropical cyclone, i.e. a hurricane or a typhoon. Mm -hmm. But the third condition, which allows you to go from a depression to a storm to a tropical cyclone, is the temperature of the water. A tropical cyclone will not form if the water is below 80 degrees Fahrenheit or approximately 26 degrees centigrade. So you need warm water. And the warmer the water, the more energy the hurricane has. So climate scientists, when looking at the impact on hurricanes, there is still, or tropical cyclones, there's still the debate about whether there is an increase in the frequency because that's the frequency has so many other things associated with it, particularly this upper wind shear, which can destroy a tropical cyclone when it's forming. But the water temperature is just the way the Earth works. The Earth likes to produce tropical cyclones when you get warm tropical water because it dissipates the energy on our planet. It's the way our planet maintains temperature equilibrium. So the warmer the water, the more energy it has. And that's why we know, looking through our instrumental records, looking through models, that when you have a warmer ocean temperature, you're going to get more intense tropical cyclones. So they're more likely to be the category four and five that we've seen recently with Typhoon Nora that hit the Philippines and then Vietnam and um, um, Hurricane Ian that hit Cuba and Florida. Ben, when you look at these trends uh, and we know, you know, Singapore has been following these trends for years and, and we certainly, you know, you, as you have been at the uh, the Earth Observatory here in Singapore, uh, how does this bode for, um, for what Singapore's weather future might look like? We saw uh, massive rain earlier this year and I don't know, uh, you know, over a course of, of days and I don't know if that was climate change related or just – you know, just a lot of rain. Uh, but what what does this all say about what we can expect here in Singapore? Well, in Singapore, we're obviously not influenced by tropical cyclones, right? Um, because we sit right on the equator, so they don't form here. You know, traditionally we're known at the equator as the doldrums, the areas with very very light winds. Although we do get some squalls that come out of Indonesia, mm-hmm. our weather system here 
is dominated by the El Nino Southern Oscillation. So that's the weather system. And a lot of the wet weather that we've been experiencing this year and last year is because we're in the part of the El Nino system called La Nina. So La Nina is wet, relatively cool temperatures on the western side of the Pacific Mm. and in Southeast Asia. The flip side of it is El Nino. When El Nino happens, as happened in 2016, which was the year for record-breaking temperatures in Southeast Asia and concerning droughts, you have very hot temperatures and very dry temperatures. So that's the natural variability that Singapore has had really for thousands of years, fluctuating between La Nina and El Nino. Mm. But superimposed upon these Mm. weather patterns is climate change. So you always want to think about it as a gradual change in climate that changes year on year, decade on decade, and superimposed are the natural variability. So for a La Nina, traditionally, when you have a La Nina, it would be wet. Climate change causes it to be even wetter because if you increase global mean temperatures by one degree C, which we have done, then the atmosphere of our planet is able to hold 7% more water vapour. So when you get wet conditions, they're even wetter. Now, I said that they're relatively cool. Well, but we've got an increase in global temperatures, which is enhanced in the tropics. So you don't really feel the the influence of cooler temperatures. You just feel the influence of really wet weather. Hmm. And right now we're in a La Nina phase and we're going to be in this La Nina phase for perhaps at least the next nine months. So people here in Singapore should really expect wet weather to be occurring. Hmm. And what's interesting about this here in Singapore is this is the third La Nina on the trot. We've had La Nina, La Nina. We go La Nina, go into neutral. And we think we'd go into an El Nino. No, we go back into La Nina. Then it goes neutral. You think, oh, we must go into an El Nino. We go back into La Nina. So we've had very high rainfall for the last several years. Hmm. And what is interesting is, do we have the adaptations here in Singapore for unusual events? Because commonly planners will plan for a one in 100 year event. But what we're seeing throughout the world is that one in 100 or an event that statistically should occur just once every 100 years is starting to occur once every decade Mm. or once every five years. The magnitudes are getting bigger and the frequency is getting more frequent. As a climate scientist, what concerns me, what has always concerned me living here in Singapore, is that if we go into an El Nino phase, in 2016, we had a very, very mild El Nino, but we broke all records and there was massive drought in Southeast Asia, wildfires in Southeast Asia causing horrific air pollution. What I'm concerned about is do we, are we going to now have, after a series of La Ninas, a big El Nino that occurred mm-hmm. in 1982 and occurred in 1998? One of these big events superimposed upon a warming climate could make Singapore quite unbearable to live in and quite dangerous to work in, particularly for the elderly, the young and infirm. Mm-hmm. It could cause significant drought, in Southeast Asia, and we know here in Singapore, despite its excessive rainfall, because we don't have the catchments to catch it, 
we have to import a lot of our water. And then finally, because we've known about haze in the past, if we get dry, hot conditions, what do you get? Wildfires. I mean, this summer, you know, with climate change, these extremes, hot and dry, you see them all over the world. It's quite confusing for the public at times because you'll see very wet weather Mm. causing landslides and you'll see hot weather causing wildfires. And you have to think about that with climate change, the extremes become more intense right. and they become more frequent. Yeah. So if you talk to, if your listeners are talking to, you know, family members, you can ask them, so what was the hottest summer that you can imagine in Singapore? And then dial that up. What was the wettest summer or year you could have in Singapore? And dial it up because that's what we will experience in the next 10 years because we're not going to be immune from this. Everywhere on the planet is suffering from these extremes. What we need to be prepared for is adapting to extremes because they may be extreme in nature, but they will happen to every single one of us on planet Earth. Well, let's stay with that for a moment, Ben. I mean, recently you mentioned the summer in the UK. My hometown, I grew up just outside of East London in Essex, was one of the towns that was on fire, which is unthinkable to me because when I grew up, as you mentioned, Average temperature was low 20s. Even 30-degree days was a rarity. I don't even remember it happening. I'm sure it did. Now we're reaching 40-degree days in the UK. This would have been unthinkable just 20 years ago. And yet somehow we're, we're, I wouldn't say getting used to it. That's the wrong term. But we are kind of adapting to it. And I find that complacency slightly worrying. When you come on our show, you always tend to be optimistic. You always talk about your wonderful students and the next generation and how they're the ones who are going to lead the way. But I also wondered, Ben, my hometown in the UK on fire, record-breaking droughts everywhere, higher rainfall, storms becoming the norm. Do you ever fear that we may be reaching some sort of tipping point here? Well, I think there are far, far more dangerous tipping points than the temperatures of London topping 40 degrees C. There are tipping points in the climate system where there isn't a London. Mm. There's a tipping point in the climate system where there isn't a Singapore. There's a tipping point in the climate system where there isn't civilization. So I think tipping points a little bit of what what do you mean? What do you mean by that, Ben? Well, okay. so Singapore, a tipping point. So the thing, one of the things that, um, you know, I'm doing quite a lot of now is, is that I'm starting to try and talk to the business community. So my career has changed dramatically. It's been enhanced by being here in Singapore. But, you know, 10, 15 years or so ago, I was basically talking to a mirror. I was talking to people who were like me, scientists, and we talk about our different models and our different data sets. About five to 10 years or so ago, policymakers started to be interested because they were concerned about the impacts of climate change. And here in Singapore, we had the prime minister talking about the existential threat of sea level rise. But in the last few years, it is the business community. They are worried about, you know, reinsurance. They're worried about supply chains. They want to be be in the right place at the right time for consumer trends. Now, tipping points is one of the aspects that the scientific community have been trying to influence policymakers. And I've also been trying to show to businesses that if we cross those tipping points, you don't have a business. Yeah. So people who <laughs> want to greenwash on ESG or sustainability development goals 
or scientific targets. Mm, mm. They are putting the world at risk. So a tipping point for Singapore is the Antarctic ice sheet. So scientists know, some of the work that I've done, that if you go above 2 degrees C, above pre-industrial temperatures, and we've already risen by 1 degree C, we go above 2 degrees C, you set the wheels in motion to collapse the Antarctic ice sheet. The Antarctic ice sheet has within it 65 metres of water. So you only need to collapse a small percentage of that, and a third of this island of Singapore is underwater, because Singapore's got about a one-metre wiggle room if you add on high tides and some small storm waves. That's Singapore. You know, Singapore, a a nation that's relatively young, but has people who are incredibly proud of it, just is wiped off the surface of the map because we've got nowhere to go. We could conversely spend $100 billion to protect Singapore. But we know through the pandemic that we're a global community. Mm. Other places come. Mm. So that's just one um, um, existential threat. Mm. If you go above that two-degree C threshold, I can just list you these others. If you go above a two-degree threshold, 99%, 99% of coral reefs are extinct. The Great Barrier Reef that has existed for 25 million years disappears. Now, how much of our food is based around the fish in our sea? And they, most of them breed around corals. You remove the corals, we don't have any fish, food problems. Mm. Himalayan ice cap. Okay, so the Himalayan ice cap feeds 1 billion people in Asia. Go above 2 degrees C, it isn't there. Mm. We don't have the water for a billion people. Go above two degrees C just more generally. One in every two species, one in every two species is prone to extinction. So we don't have the biodiversity. We can't adapt. We go above two degrees C and the ocean conveyor that takes our heat from the tropics to the pole collapses plunging the northern hemisphere into temperature changes of in excess of 10 degrees C within a decade. We can't adapt. So we're seeing signs of extremes. But if you knew what I knew, you haven't got a clue of what the Earth can do if you go above a threshold. Now, what's brilliant Hmm. is that scientists have told you what that threshold is. We told it in 2016 at the Paris Agreement. And at Paris Agreement, policymakers said, right, we're going to do that. But the government and the business community went, yeah, we don't. Why pay any attention to to scientists? What do they know? (laughs) So what are you telling them now, Ben? I mean, clearly, we've got tipping points everywhere. So what are you telling them now? What can they do? What can people listening to this show do? Well, okay, what I do is just do what I just did to you. I don't hold back any punches when I give these talks. So I'm invited by... You know, I did the Mandalay Club this week. I've done Chanel, Schneider Electric, straight trading. I don't go in there and pull any punches. I tell them how it is. And I try to get the people there to be very, very concerned about this because they should be Mm. and want to act upon it. So when people who are investing in new companies that say they have ESG goals, instead of just ticking the box, Mm. go and do some work on it. Make sure that they are trying to protect 
the planet. Try to get people to think to provide a value to the planet that we live on. Try to stress on people who are parents. When you're a parent, your number one priority, I heard you talking about your daughter, and I could tell, Neil, when you were talking about your daughter, how proud you were of her. But your responsibility as a parent is to keep her healthy and to keep her safe. You go above those two degrees threshold, she won't be healthy and she won't be safe. So that is also, as a parent, that's your number one priority. So you can't just live your life exactly how you did. But you don't need to make dramatic changes. It's incremental. Change your diet, change the way you work, consumer choices, try to be more efficient. Travel, try to combine different types of travel. You know, and then we can solve this. Um, I saw a talk the other day that said that if we put the same emphasis as we did into the pandemic, as Western nations are to do with Ukraine, we would solve climate change within a decade. (laughs) And that's what we need. We need to have a war on climate like we have a war on Russia. We need to have the collective governmental and private consensus as we did on the pandemic. And we know with the pandemic, the vaccine was not solved by a social media star, wasn't solved by a sportsman or a politician or a, a radio show host. It was solved by a scientist Mm. because in the end in the end even people like donald trump decided to listen to science you know when i look at at some at some level (laughs) at some level well no but he okay okay i mean i you know i am not a supporter of him you know i could say some quite a lot of expletives regarding my thoughts about him (laughs) But he did start Operation Warp Speed. Mm. He did cut some of the regulations to get that vaccine developed very rapidly. And it saved millions upon millions of lives. You know, for the Republican Party, I always wondered why they didn't like use that as a huge selling point of what that man did rather than the other atrocities that he did. Mm. And when I think about when I think about it, Hurricane Ian. You know, Hurricane Ian, as I said, the scientific community knew about this as a threat. We've been talking to governments about the increase in intensity, slowness of speed, huge storm surges. And I saw the destruction. You know, I turned on CNN and I saw all these people. And in the panhandle, that's Trump country, you know, always voted Republican. And those people aren't to blame. They've been lied to again and again by Republican politicians that climate change isn't a problem. And if they hadn't have been lied to, maybe they would have escaped harm's way. It's not their fault. It's the politicians who know so much better, who did it in their own selfish interests rather than serving the people that elected them. And I feel very emotive about that. I always have. Yeah. Ben, thanks so much for the for the discussion today. It's always great to kind of check the pulse of where we're at with with uh, with this topic. And unfortunately, it has not gotten better over the years that we've been talking to you on the show. Oh, um, can yeah. I finish on uh, Can I finish on something positive? Sure. Okay. So, I, don't know, I don't know. Can you? <laughs> yes, I can. Is it possible? Again, it's about technology. <laughs> yeah. So here at the Earth Observatory of Singapore, last week. We wrote a benchmark paper in Nature where we teamed together with NASA scientists to use very innovative satellite technology to look at the 50 largest cities in the world and calculate to the millimeter scale 
whether they are sinking or not. This work was led by a young female graduate student at NTU, who was now a leader in this, called Cheryl Tay. We were able to provide data which enables now cities to adapt to sea level rise, because sea level rise has three sides to it. It's like three-sided triangle. You have to know what the ice sheets are doing. You have to know what the oceans are doing, which we know through the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And the third side is what the land is doing. And we didn't know that before Cheryl's work. And now for every city, Singapore, all the big large cities, Singapore, Bangkok, Manila, New York, DC, Sydney, London, we know exactly whether the city is sinking or it's stable. Hmm. And therefore we can provide the appropriate adaptations. And there you go. Yeah. We didn't know that one year ago. It was a big unknown. And that's what science can do. Yeah, brilliant. Great stuff. Ben, thanks so much for uh, being with us today. Uh, as always, Ben Horton, uh, who is the head of, or the director, rather, of the Earth Observatory of Singapore at Nanyang Technological University. Uh, we look forward to having you on again in the future and uh, and, and to hear some, maybe some more of the, uh, the the positive developments in science and, and hopefully in government and business who are finally listening and heeding and doing something different. Thanks, Ben. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.